The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Hey, my name is Paul, and I'm one of the pastors here at Heritage. We're really glad that you're, you're worshiping with us. We are in the very tail end of a sermon series we started back in the fall, walking through the Gospel of Mark in the New Testament. We're in chapter 13 today. Uh, I encourage you if you brought a Bible to open up to Mark chapter 13. We're gonna we're actually gonna read the whole chapter in its entirety, but we're gonna focus our teaching on verses 24 through 37. If you were here last week, we introduced this this chapter. It's it's called the Olivet Discourse. It's a it's a teaching that Jesus gave to his disciples on the Mount of Olives. That's why it's called the Olivet Discourse. And and you can read the parallel versions of this discourse in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, chapter 21, and in the Gospel of Ma- uh, Matthew, chapter 24. And we've broken it up in two sermons today. My, my hope is to not spend a lot of time covering what we covered last week, because like we said, it's kind of a point one, uh, sermon part one and sermon part two, because there's a lot happening here. One of the important things that we noticed last week as we got into the Olivet Discourse was that this is Jesus speaking about future things, uh, this is about the, uh, the end of days. This is about future things. This is a study of, of uh, the, the end times in certain regards. Uh, we call this eschatology in, in the church. And Jesus is speaking about eschatology. But it's interesting because we recognized last week, even though there is all of this focus on future things, and a lot of people love to read this chapter and try to pick apart how these future things are going to come to pass and, and what it looks like when it comes to pass. And yet, In the teaching, the 32 verses that Jesus teaches, 19 times he offers imperatives to his disciples or to his listeners. And so the focus is not so much on when things are going to happen in the future, but how it is that Jesus wants his disciples to live in light of future realities. That's sort of the lens that we've been viewing the Olivet Discourse through encourage you, if you weren't here last week, it's probably good. It would be important for you to go back and listen to the podcast or go to our YouTube channel and listen to the first teaching because I'm not going to be able to cover a lot of that real estate today for the sake of time. And today we're going to hopefully, again, we're not going to answer every question there is to answer about the Olivet Discourse. There's been lots of really smart people for centuries and centuries and centuries who've been working in and thinking about and writing about and interpreting this passage. And we're going to do our best to provide some clarity today. Amen. Let's read the whole chapter again in its entirety, Mark 13, and then like I said earlier, we will unpack verses 24 and beyond, beginning in 13, verse 1. As he, Jesus, came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings, and Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars... And rumors of wars do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginnings of the birth pains. Verse 9. But be on guard, for they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake and bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in the hour, for it is not you who speaks, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and the children rise against their parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not be, let the reader understand, let, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for 
those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it may not happen in winter, for in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect, but be on guard. I have told you these things beforehand. Verse 24. But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from the heavens and the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Then he will, be, then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home, he puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Amen. Like I said last week, I'm sure we have it all figured out. No questions after reading that passage. Again, as we shared last week, this chapter and its parallel accounts of both Matthew and Luke uh, are, are one of the most disputed places in all of Scripture. Different theologians and scholars have commented on the difficulty, the problematic nature when it comes to interpreting this chapter, and virtually no one has agreed over the centuries. So last week, we, we said this is a call for us as Bible readers, as men and women seeking to interpret and hear from God. It's a call for us to be humble. As we looked at the passages, verses 1 through 23 last week, we pulled out four things. If you were here, we, we saw where Jesus clearly said the temple will be destroyed. And then we looked at those sort of imperatives, those to-do commands that Jesus gave his disciples in those first few verses up through 23. And, and what Jesus essentially said to those men was, don't be led astray or alarmed. He told them to be on guard and bear witness with endurance, and he told them to be prepared for horrors, but remain steadfast. That was our teaching points from last week. And as we approach a challenging text where there is um, disagreement on interpretation, I was listening to a preacher this week, and he said, we have to remember the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. It's, it's tempting to get in the weeds when we're in a text like this and start looking at the unique little peculiarities and try to uh, see and kind of have a conspiracy theory mind and get caught up in the weeds of things that aren't clear. But there are some things in Mark chapter 13 that are clear. And those are the main things and the plain things. And we want to focus on those as we unpack this text. Now listen, I am just a man. And I shared this last week. And there are smarter and better and more godly men than me that have worked in this text and have had different interpretations than the one I'm going to share with you today. I read this week that God's word is infallible, but no individual is an infallible interpreter of God's word. With humility, we're going to do our best today. And I hope that there's grace and humility on your part. And if you disagree with the things I say, as we shared last week, this is not a reason for us to divide over. I believe as we look at this passage, as we look at the whole of Mark 13, there's one central message that comes through. One primary message that comes through as we look at the whole of this chapter, and I'm going to say this about 10 times today. I think the primary message of Mark 13 is this. With great hope, Christian. With great hope, keep, wait, keep, keep watching for his return and keep working for his glory. I think this is what Jesus is saying again and again in this passage, among other things. I think this is the primary message of Mark 13. With great hope, keep watching for his return and keep working for his glory. Would you pray with me? 
God, would you give us humility today? God, ears to hear. God, we believe that you have given us your word that it would be understandable. God, we believe that you have given us your word that that we don't have some uh, intelligible or unintelligible uh, message, but, but God, we believe that you've given us your word that we might have an intelligible truth that we can respond to and receive. So God, would you give us ears to hear the things you want us to understand today as we read this passage? We ask that you do this in the power of the Holy Spirit. God, would you bring unity to our church, bring unity to your church as we walk through this passage. God, give us hearts to receive what it is you want us to receive. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It's Father's Day, and and, uh, this Father's Day, I've been thinking of my dad, of course. My dad's still living. He's 75. He lives in, in Wisconsin. We grew up in Montana. My dad is such a throwback. He is like, he's if, 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 Davy Crockett and Daniel Boone had a child, it would be my father. That's my dad. He shoots and eats squirrels still. He, uh, he shoots deer on his land, grows all his own food. If it was up to my dad, he would never go to the grocery store. He'd live off his land and nobody would bother him. I love that about my dad. He's so old school. He knows how to do anything and everything. And when I was a kid, of course, my dad was a logger. He was powerful and strong. And he was the epitome of strength and masculinity. And I just wanted to be around my dad. And he was pretty good about inviting us to be a part of his world. And I remember watching my dad as a kid. We grew up on a little chunk of land in western Montana. In the springtime, the the dead winter grass would be kind of just sitting there, and and all the farmers and all the landowners would just burn their grass in the springtime. Is that a thing here? Do people burn their grass here? Yes? No? Evidently, it's good for the soil. I don't know. My dad would burn the grass, and I always wanted to be a part of it, but he'd never let me be a part of it because I was too small. I might get in the way. And then one year when I was like maybe 12 or 13, my my dad asked me to be a part of the burning the fields and the burning the grass. It was like a rite of passage for me. And one of the things about my dad that was interesting is he always had these really interesting stories to tell about his childhood. And and my dad used to tell this story about uh, having a marshmallow chocolate malt. I grew up in a town of like six people in the middle of nowhere. We didn't have fast food restaurants. We didn't have, and we were poor. We didn't have means. And so I never knew what a marshmallow chocolate malt was in person. I only knew what a marshmallow chocolate malt was through the story of my father. And he told this compelling story about working in the hay fields all day and going to this, this ice cream shop with this ranch owner and having a chocolate marshmallow malt after a hard day's work. And the way he described it, I, my whole life, I wanted a marshmallow chocolate malt. I didn't know what it was, but I wanted one so bad. It sounded so good. So this day that my dad asks me to help him burn the fields, he says, I tell you what, son, if you work hard and you're helpful, afterwards we'll go get a marshmallow chocolate malt at this little diner in our hometown, the Garfield Cafe on Highway 93. And I was so stoked. And so I go out on the field, and we worked all day very carefully burning the ditches. I have a shovel and a rake and a wet burlap sack and doing all my part and buckets and trying to manage the fire and be safe. And I'm breathing in smoke, and I'm getting near the flames, and I'm getting tired. But this idea of this marshmallow chocolate malt just kept me going, man. I wanted to give up. I wanted to walk away. There's times when the flames got too big, and I was afraid. But that reward or the hope of this thing that was awaiting me kept me working in the thick black smoke, kept me working when the flames were, were licking at my heels, kept me working when my body was tired as a, as a kid trying to keep up with my father. And then we finished the work. My dad got us in his old beat-up Dodge pickup truck. We drove down to Garfield Cafe. We bellied up to this bar, and we ordered two marshmallow chocolate malts. One of the greatest moments of my childhood. And they bring this big, you know, the malt, the glass malt thing with like a little pedestal base, and it was filled with chocolate malt with uh, whipped cream and a cherry, and then for added bonus, like that metal mixer malt thing with the, the rest of the malt sitting next to it, and I was like, it was, it was like the best thing I ever, I, it was like both a rite of passage, it was time with my dad, it was amazing, it was this awesome reward, and I look back on that, and I remember as a kid working with my dad, not wanting to disappoint my dad, choking in black smoke and dealing with the flames on that spring day, the throbbing weariness of my body, but the hope of that malt kept me going. When you have something out there that gives you hope, it gets you, keeps you going in the darkest of days. When there's something out there that gives you hope, you can deal with the thick black smoke of life. You can deal with the flames that want to threaten. You can deal with hard things when we have hope. Our text today is about that hope. It's about the ultimate hope, the hope for all Christians, the hope for all humanity. That's what our text is about today. As we looked at verses 1 through 23 last week, Jesus was speaking about the destruction of the temple 
in Jerusalem. That happened in 70 AD. Jesus was kind of predictively and prophetically talking about how that was going to take place. It was a harsh handful of verses. Jesus is telling his disciples, he's saying there's going to be false Christs, there's going to be wars and rumors of wars, there's going to be kingdoms rising up against kingdoms and nations against nations, there's going to be earthquakes and famines and, and brutal persecutions, there's going to be a call to faithfulness in the face of fierce opposition, there's going to be an abomination of desolation, there's going to be unspeakable horrors that will require people to run for their lives to the mountains, there's going to be destruction and death and hatred and division. And if the story ended there, there would be no hope. But the story shifts in verse 24. In verse 24, Jesus lifts the eyes of the readers up, and he focuses our eyes on this great hope that the dark days and the black thick smoke and the flames is not the end of the story for the Christian. The Mark 13 message is that with great hope we are called by Jesus to keep watch for his return and to keep working for his glory. I'm reminded of what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 8 about these present sufferings that we have to deal with in this sort of already not yet place within which we live where the, the kingdom of, of heaven has been inaugurated but it's not been fully consummated and we live in this already not yet place. We are Christ but we're in a broken fallen world and we deal with the sufferings and the smoke and the flames and the weariness of this world. Paul writes about that in Romans 8 beginning in verse 18. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be re revealed to us. For the creation awaits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know, Paul says, that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we await eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And Paul goes on to say, and we know that for all those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So this is the hope that Jesus is presenting to his disciples, them then and us today. Every Christian who has ever lived has lived in the reality of this present suffering. We're in the last days. The last days are from the ascension of Jesus and the return of Jesus. All the space in between is the last days. And we've been awaiting and Jesus has called his disciples in the last days. That's them then on Mount of Olives. That's us today. He's called us to, to keep watch, to, to be on guard, to not fall asleep, to keep watching. He, he is in the, the gospel of Mark as he's interacted with the religious leadership on the Mount of, of the, the Temple Mount over the last several chapters. If, you, if you've been a part of this series for the last month or so, Jesus has, has elevated what he wants his disciples to look like, to live like in the face of a broken, fallen world. He calls his disciples to fruitfulness. Not flashiness. We're not about externalism. Disciples of Jesus are, are, are surrendered to Christ and there's a fruitfulness that comes through an abiding life. That's what he calls his disciples to. To, to offer up faith-filled, expectant prayer. To live in the center of forgiveness. To model forgiveness in, in the community in which we live. He's called his church in the previous chapters to have a deep concern for the lost. To be on mission for Jesus. He has called his church to a full surrender of his authority and his lordship. He's called his church to, to offer their entire selves to him, to live in light of eternity, to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love others as ourselves. He's called his church to live in authentic worship. And so this is the message of Mark 13. With great hope, we are to keep watching for his return and to keep working for his glory. Now, I don't want to recover any of the the material we covered last week, but I want to offer a couple quick overviews of some of the issues we brought up last week that kind of helped frame the rest of our discussion of the Olivet Discourse. Last week we said when we talk about eschatology, the you know, end times, we, we, can, we can get in the ditch on, on one side and on the other side. If you were here last week, you heard me talk about this. 
we, we're talking about the, 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 the prophetic, the future things, the, 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 the predictive teachings of Jesus here. We're talking about eschatology. And one of the ways we get off the rails is when we get into eschatomania, where all we want to think about, talk about, occupy our mind with is trying to figure out what the future holds to the abandonment of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. The other way we get off the rails is when we get to, into eschatophobia. We never look at the future things. We never think of the prophetic words in the scriptures. We never engage with eschatology because it scares us. It's frightening. We're going to avoid both of those today. We talked last week about how I said there are two things I don't want to do as a preacher. I don't want to come up here and in pride and arrogance think that I have somehow figured out what no one's been able to figure out for 2,000 years. No one has, has agreed on this text for 2,000 years. And it would be very arrogant of me to come up here and present just one perspective as if it's the absolute objective truth about how we're to interpret and read Mark 13. I'll give a perspective of which I'm 51% sure I'm right, but I'm not, 49% of me is not so sure. And so with humility, we can discuss these things. I also don't want to try to cover every little jot and tittle to the point where it just becomes this confusing nothingness of a sermon. So we're going to pick an interpretive lens. We did last week and we will this week. It's a call to humility. Last week, you threw up the, the, the chart of convictions, if you remember. We talked about how there are things in the Christian church, there are doctrines, there are theological truths that we die for. These are the essential doctrines of the Christian faith. There is no compromise on these. Things like God the Father, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, the biblical understanding of those things, like our convictions in reference to Scripture. We believe that Scripture is inerrant, that it's inspired and that it, is, it has authority. We, we don't, that's an unyielding conviction of ours. Our doctrine of the Trinity is unyielding. Uh, our, our belief in the ordinances is unyielding. These are doctrines we die for. Our, our conviction about the church conduct, uh, about, the, about the, the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, uh, about the return of Christ on last things. These are die-for issues, these core doctrines. And then there are issues that churches divide over, doctrinal convictions. We, we don't we die over the absolutes. We, we can divide over deep convictions. But when it comes to these other things where there's questions and disagreements, those belong in the debate against and the discuss with category. When we look at Mark 13 and discussions of eschatology, they are not divide over issues. The specifics, the belief that Jesus is returning is absolutely a die over issue, but the particularities of how that works is an issue that we as Christians have to be able, we ought to be able to, to debate with one another. We ought to be able to discuss it without dividing. So that's the framework that we set up last week. And I shared with you kind of the way in which I view the text. And you don't have to agree with me. Some of you don't. And I think that's awesome. There's men on the elder board that don't fully agree with my perspective on this, but we believe that this is something we can debate and discuss. So if you remember last week, I threw up a graphic of two horizons. And I said, my perspective of Mark 13 is this. I, I believe... I'm 51% sure. I believe that when Jesus was speaking to those disciples, then, then, those four men on the top of Mount Olives that day, I believe that there were two horizons that Jesus had in view. Now, those men, when they talked about the destruction of the temple, that was so cataclysmic for them, they automatically lumped that into the end of the age and the return of Christ. To them, that was all one thing. The consummation of the kingdom all happened. And so as, as, as they asked the question, they can't fathom that there would be a space and, 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 and there would be time and generations and even millennia between the, the, the destruction of the temple and the return of Jesus. So there's like these two horizons. Jesus speaks to them, I think, primarily in verses 5 through 23. I think Jesus is primarily speaking to the disciples about near horizon issues, about the destruction of the temple and the fall of Jerusalem, which occurred in 70 AD. Some of you disagree with me, and it's entirely appropriate to disagree with me on this. But I think Jesus, as he speaks to those men, he's talking about the destruction of the temple and the prophetic, predictive accuracy of the words of Jesus to those men that day came true 38 years later. It's incredible. It's a powerful evidence of the divinity of Jesus. But I think there are times when Jesus goes from talking about a near horizon issue, the, the destruction of the temple, and then there are times when Jesus lifts his eyes up and he speaks about remote future things, like his second coming, and that's far horizon. Our passage today, beginning in verse 24, I'm going to make the argument that Jesus is talking about a far horizon issue in verse 24. Up to this point, he's been talking about the destruction of the temple, I believe, and I think in verse 24, he then lifts his eyes up and he starts speaking about a distant or remote horizon 
his second coming. And I think as we work through the, the whole of the Olivet Discourse, there's an argument to be made. I think that Jesus is kind of even kind of going back and forth. And there may even be times where there's this idea of dual fulfillment where Jesus is speaking of something that was going to happen in 70 AD, but it was a powerful foreshadowing of a greater reality that would happen when he returns. So there's an argument to be made that Jesus had both horizons in view at certain times when he was speaking of future things. Trying not to confuse you. I'm trying to lay the, the framework for where we are today. Today, as we get in verse 24, it seems to me that Jesus is switching his, his focus to the far horizon. And that would be future for us today also. So the first thing I would encourage you to write down that I think Jesus is sharing with us here, beginning in verse 24 through verse 27, is that Jesus is coming back. I believe that Jesus is teaching those disciples then and us today this reality, this hope that he is coming back. And like I said a few moments ago, that we are in the last days. And we've been chatting about this as a staff and, and as elders a little bit about how each generation really believes and feels like it's their generation that Jesus is going to come back to. I was just even thinking about the 20th century and, and the early 21st century, just the, the, what I'm familiar with. Think if, you lived, think if you lived in Poland in 1937 and you saw this powerful tyrant at the, at the helm of Germany marching across the continent, enslaving and imprisoning Jews, like, you're thinking, that's the Antichrist. Ours is the generation. This is it. I grew, I'm a Cold War child. Many of you grew up in the Cold War when Russia was the great enemy. And I remember when Gorbachev rose to power, there was all this discussion about, was Gorbachev, was he the Antichrist? Did he play in the end times? And people really believed it was that generation. And then I remember in the early 2000s when Ahmadinejad was the prime minister of Iran and they were getting nuclear missiles and they had, they had this very outspoken hatred for Israel and many people believed that Ahmadinejad was going to play and factor into the last things. This is our generation. I remember in the 2010s when everyone thought maybe it was Obama and I heard different teachings on how Barack Obama might have been the Antichrist or played somehow into the end times and it was that generation. I think every generation has a tendency to think it's their generation and if you think about the the encouragement of Jesus is to keep watch, be on guard, don't fall asleep. I think to a certain degree that's a proper response. We ought to live as if the end can come at any time, as if Jesus can return at any time. I think when people ask me, do you believe we're in the last days? Of course I believe we're in the last days. We've been in the last days for 2,000 years. But I think the real question is that a lot of us are wondering when we see current events and craziness unfolding on the news, we, we start asking ourselves, are we in the last days of the last days? Is this really, it feels like this is really it. And we look at current events, we look at war in Ukraine, we look at vaccinations, we look at the collapse of the U.S. dollar and all these fearful things that happen, and we begin to wonder, is this it? Are we in the last days of the last days? If you look at verse 24, Jesus says, in those last days after that tribulation, he says, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, stars will fall from heaven, the powers of heavens will be shaken. In verse 26, he says, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. That, that language in Scripture is only ever used to speak to, I believe, the second coming of Jesus. It's a reference to Daniel chapter 7. Son of Man was the favorite self-designation of Jesus over 80 times in the Gospels. Jesus refers to himself as a Son of Man. And some make the argument that here Jesus, it's the first time that he definitely connects the title Son of Man with the Daniel prophecy. I read, I read this week from a, a theologian or a scholar about how this is a shift in the way Jesus communicates. Up to this point, there's been the secret. If you remember back through the Gospel of Mark, the, some people call it the messianic secret. Jesus was the Messiah, and he would tell people, hey, don't say, don't tell anyone what happened. Just keep it between us. Like he was kind of veiling who he was for years. But there's no veiling. Here he's being very obvious about who he is. One, one scholar puts it this way. He says, the great emphasis of these verses here in Mark 24 through 26, the, the great emphasis of these verses is on disclosure and triumph. Whereas the Son of Man is hidden before, or at least veiled in his first coming, now, as Jesus speaks, he will be revealed powerfully. Men and women will see him. They will see him for who he really is. Whereas he has been the lowly suffering servant in Mark's gospel up to this point, despised and rejected by men, the Son of Man, at his parousia or his second, glorious second coming, he will come in triumph 
Jesus used the word see will come with great power and glory. And his chief concern at his coming will be the bringing together of his people so that they may be with him. Therefore, as it says in verse 27, he sends forth his angels to gather the elect from all over the world. When we look at this, this language, this cataclysmic language in this, this apocalyptic language in verse 24, the sun and moon will be darkened and will not, the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heavens and the power of the heavens will be shaken. You know there's debate whether or not that's actual, literally, the, the sun is literally going to fall from the sky, if the heavens are literally going to be shaken. And some scholars think, no, no, that's, this, this is apocalyptic language, it's metaphorical, but it's about, regardless of your take on that, it's very clear that before Jesus returns, there's going to be some cataclysmic, unmistakable, mind-blowing realities that are going to unfold. As we were meeting as a staff this Tuesday, Kathy Johnston, our our women's ministries director, she pointed out that, that when you think about that, the, the sun being darkened, the moon being darkened, the, the heavens falling, when you think about that reality, it's like all the things that are apparently stable to us are going to be disrupted. If you're like me, when, when crazy things happen in life and hard things happen, crisis, financial crisis, loss, whatever it may be, my brain immediately begins to problem solve. And I'm like, okay, what's something stable I can grab onto? How can I problem solve and rectify this problem? And I begin to retreat to the most stable things. There's nothing more stable than the fact the sun rises in the morning and sets at night. There's nothing more stable than the fact the moon, we set our calendar to it. In fact, when we're in the darkness, we still have the North Star to tell us which way is true north. And when, when this text tells us that the very things that we cling to for stability will be shaken, it's a terrifying concept. The picture is clear. In cataclysmic and apocalyptic ways, Jesus is coming back. And he does so in a stark contrast to his first advent, his first coming. Born of a virgin, a peasant woman from a forgotten town betrothed to a carpenter, no room at the inn, in a manger. No one would have ever thought the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords would have come that way. He came in obscurity. He came in a veiled way. There will be no obscurity on his second coming. Everybody, everybody will know. So the picture is clear. Jesus is coming back. Matthew 24, 27 offers a little bit more, quotes Jesus as saying this in this same conversation. Jesus says to his disciples that day on the Mount of Olives, he says, for as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the, as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. And so the truth is that we have reason for great hope. Jesus is coming back. He's victorious. No matter how bad it gets today, he's victorious. He's overcome those things. And he's coming back. So the language for us as believers is very clear. Keep watching for his return. Stay awake. Keep on guard. And keep working for his glory. And there's this awesome language in verse 27 about how when he comes, he's going to send out angels and he's going to gather his elect from the, the four winds, from the four ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Jesus is coming back for his bride. The groom is coming for the bride. The, Jesus is coming for his own. I think of the language of, of, the Olivet, or of the upper room discourse the next night as Jesus gathered with his disciples in the room where they shared the Lord's Supper together on his final night before he was betrayed. The Gospel of John records this long conversation Jesus has with his disciples. And in John 14, verses 1 through 3, Jesus is speaking to these men. Now they've heard this teaching. They've heard the Olivet Discourse. They've heard that hard things are awaiting. And as Jesus is gathering that next night with them around the Lord's Supper, Jesus says to them, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. He says to them, in my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. He's coming back. And he's coming back for those who are his. This is great hope. The author of Hebrews chapter 9 verse 28 puts it this way. So Christ... Having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So what does this mean? As we think a little bit more deeply and a little bit more theologically about the second coming of Jesus, what does it mean for us today? Well, I think if you tend to the, the right ditch, where you don't want to think about future things, we don't really think about the second coming of Jesus as being a part of the gospel. 
We just think of it as this future thing we don't know about, so we don't want to think about it. But the, the second coming of Jesus is a, is a very significant aspect of the gospel. The implication of the return of Christ is a major part of how we understand the gospel. I read this week that whereas Christ's first coming brought salvation through his death and resurrection, his second coming will bring about the resurrection of our bodies, which is the final goal and hope of our salvation. As Paul writes in Romans 8, like I just read a minute ago, we await for the redemption of our bodies. The hope of the second coming is not an afterthought to the gospel. It's something we ought to occupy our thoughts with. It is the very real and central part of the gospel. It gives us the confidence that Jesus is in fact victorious over sin and death. And that very real salvation of our mortal bodies is going to come once and for all. And we have this hope of a, of a glorified, resurrected body, I read this week, that is pure, immortal, and incorruptible. And it's imminent. He's going to come back at any time. The imminent return of Christ has real-time implications for those of us sitting here right now. The Apostle Paul sums up well when he challenges the Christian in Titus chapter 2. He says, in light of the return of Christ, we are, quote, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. We are to live self-controlled, upright lives. Godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The, the, the truth of the second coming has massive implications on the way in which we live today. Christians don't wait for the return of Christ passively or idly. It's not something we, are, we, we put on the shelf and forget about. We are, we are to wait eagerly. And our eager waiting is to be marked by an active pursuit of holiness in our lives, purifying holiness in our lives as we anticipate the arrival of Jesus. The Apostle John in 1 John chapter 3, he tells us that as children of God, we'll be like Jesus when he appears. John writes, and everyone who has this hope of the second coming, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he, Jesus, is pure. So as we'll see in the final few verses of chapter 13, we are to watch with readiness for his return, eager. We are to live in a way that pleases him so that when he returns, we're not ashamed of what's going on in our lives. The return of Jesus means that all injustice will be finally and fully addressed. Jesus is the righteous judge to make all things right when he comes. You know how frustrating it is? You all do when it seems as if justice has been averted by someone who deserves justice, when we see the injustices of the world today and it feels like there's no justice and you want to pull your hair out, you want to scream like this isn't fair. Man, I'm telling you. I remember what Jesus said to the, the Pharisees in Luke chapter 12, these men who had corrupt hearts. He said to them, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark, it shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. We can entrust that the true and worthy judge will deal justice according to truth. One scholar, he says, God has a day scheduled on the calendar when he will repay all the dirty deals. He'll repay all the broken promises and all the backstabbings of history. He's returning the righteous judge. And we're to recognize God's grace and God's love as we wait for that day. Any delay of Christ's return is an act of grace that God is allowing more people to come to repentance and find salvation. But guess what? The moment Jesus arrives, the moment Jesus returns, there will be no hope of salvation for those who are lost and those who have rejected him. Which means that today is the day of salvation. And for those of you that are in Christ, that know this truth, we have to feel that eminence. We have to feel the imminent nature of Christ's return that could happen at any time. He has given us marching orders as a church. We're to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And as long as he hasn't returned, today is a day of salvation for those who don't know him. So church, we need to get mobilized Take that seriously. Time is of the essence. If you're here today and you've never come to faith in Christ, if you've been toying around with who Jesus is and what it means to come to him and surrender your life to him, today is the day of salvation. 
Jesus Christ is coming back. Second thing we see in the text, verses 28 to 31, is there's lots going on here. I'm summarizing this very succinctly, is we see Jesus making the statement of trust the word of God. Jesus is saying, trust the word of God. Heaven and earth will pass away, Jesus says in verse 31, but my words will not pass away. Jesus has told these men what would happen. And his words outlast creation. And if the words of God, if the words of Jesus are eternal, then they are trustworthy. And what he has said is going to happen is going to happen. If his word is eternal, it can be trusted. He says, beginning in verse 28, from the fig tree, learn its lesson as soon as its branch comes tender and puts out its leaves, you know the summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. So Jesus is just using a common agricultural occurrence. In Palestine, most trees are evergreen, but the fig tree is one of the exceptions. It loses its leaves in the fall, and in the spring, sap comes to the surface, the leaves begin to sprout. As one theologian says, this parable is essentially an antidote to despair, in contrast to the sufferings and the persecutions promised in the previous verses. Here, the prospect is of the coming of the Son of Man. So Jesus isn't saying when you see these things run out of the city, there's destruction. Jesus is saying when you see these things, the heavens in the, in the, the, the melting away, when you see these things happening, take heart. Jesus is about to return. The consummation of all things is about to take place. And then we have one of the more difficult passages in the 13th chapter. Verse 30 is one of the most debated, disputed, and confusing passages in all of Mark. And we have to spend a few moments on verse 30. Jesus says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. And so Jesus has just taught about the destruction of the temple. He's talking about all these things that are going to take place. And then he's talked about his second coming. And then he turns to those men sitting there that day and he says, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. What does he mean by that? As I read the text, it seems pretty straightforward that he's speaking to those been there that are hearing him speak on the top of the Mount of Olives. This verse has been one of the primary ways in which people have attacked the integrity of Jesus, the integrity of the Scriptures, and the integrity of the Christian faith. As I've been reading through a book that R.C. Sproul wrote on the, uh, the, the teachings of Jesus, the, the last days according to Jesus, he, uh, he identifies, so Bertrand Russell, this kind of this 20th century famed mathematician, philosopher, atheist. He wrote a little book called Why I'm Not a Christian. And in Bertrand Russell, who was a very well-known atheist, kind of where he hung his hat in attacking the Christian faith and attacking the, the, the integrity of Jesus was, was this verse and other verses like it. Bertrand's take on this was that Jesus very clearly believed that he was going to return in the first century. And he didn't return in the first century. His conclusion is, therefore, Jesus is a false prophet. His teachings can't be trusted. He said this is going to happen in this generation. And for him, that was the, the, the card that he removed from the house of cards that caused the whole thing to tumble. And so I think sometimes we skip over that. And certainly we're not going to exhaust all the different ways to think about that. But we need, to, we need to consider deeply what is Jesus saying here in verse 30. Because this is a way in which the faith is attacked and undermined. Jesus said, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, if you have an ESV study Bible, the commentary note on verse 30 is super helpful, actually. There are at least five different interpretations that Christians have approached this generation with to help them think through what is Jesus saying here. I'll give you a very quick overview if you want to understand. The first, the first interpretation says that this generation is simply referring to those disciples who are alive when Jesus was speaking. And that he's referring back to the destruction of the temple, not, the re- not his return. Some people think that this has dual fulfillment. And Jesus is saying, this generation will not pass away until these things happen. He's speaking to them then, saying, this generation will be present when the temple is destroyed. But I just spoke about future things. And the generation that is present at that time will not pass away until these things happen. It's a valid argument. A third perspective says that this generation actually refers to a quality and not a time-bound group of people. So, for example, you might hear me say, oh, this generation lives with their faces in their iPhones. Drives me crazy. I'm not speaking about an actual generation. I'm speaking about a quality that defines a people. And some people say that Jesus is using generation here in that regard. 
whether he's talking about believers of all time or the unbelievers of all time. The fourth way people have interpreted this generation phrase is that it's referring to a race. It's referring to ethnic Israel, to the Jewish people, who will not pass away until Christ returns. And a fifth interpretation is that others understand this generation to mean the generation that will be present when the signs begin to happen. The the sun will be darkened, the moon will fall from the sky, the heavens will melt away. There's going to be a generation in the future that's present when those signs take place. And Jesus is saying, for the generation that sees those things taking place, they'll be present when I return as well. Sort of like the 38 years from the prediction of the destruction of the temple to the destruction of the temple. Jesus is saying, the generation that sees these things happening in the heavens, they're going to be around when I return. I think all five are valid, honestly. I tend towards number one because it's the most straightforward approach to the text. Uh, as I read it, it just does, it seems pretty clear that Jesus, in my estimation, is talking about those men that are present that day on the Mount of Olives. And I, and I think about it this way. I, I don't want to be confusing here. So I, God, help me not be confusing here. I don't want to be confusing here. I believe that Jesus is switching from the front horizon, the near horizon, to the far horizon, back to the near horizon here. So here's what I think is happening. I think the, the, the disciples leave the temple and they say, oh, look how glorious the temple is at the beginning of chapter 13. And Jesus says, oh yeah, you think it's beautiful? It's coming down. They're shocked. It's mind-blowing that the temple's coming down. They hustle up to the Mount of Olives. They come to him privately and say, what? The temple's coming down? Tell us about these things. And so Jesus, from verse 5 to verse 23, gives them some awful things. He tells them that some really awful and difficult things are going to happen. There's going to be famines and wars and rumors of wars and brothers against brothers and families are going to be divided. There's going to be nations rising against nations. And so for, for multiple verses, 19 verses, Jesus talks about really hard things. And by verse 23, these men are just shell-shocked, like, what? We have to flee to the mountains? What? The temple's coming down? What? It's all ending? What? And I can see Jesus saying, not the end of the story. Pause. Let's look at the far horizon for a second. I'm victorious. Yes, hard things happen in the intermediate, but I'm victorious. I'm coming back. I'm going to consummate all things. You have reason for great hope, okay? Now, With that truth guiding our thinking today, verse 30, your generation is not going to pass away. He goes back to the near horizon and begins to speak again about the destruction of the temple. There's holes in my take. There's holes in all the takes. That's how I read it. I think about the, the use of the language, these things, and it seems like the use of the language, these things, seems to, he's referring back to these things as he was speaking about in verses 5 through through 23. I think about when my wife was pregnant and we were excited with our first child and, uh, and we read all the books, did all the classes, what to expect, what you're expecting, all that. Her, took the Lamaze classes together and then I remember when uh, the due date came and passed and like two weeks went by and they're like, oh, we have to get baby out now. So they started giving my wife Pitocin and we were in the hospital for 36 hours in labor. And I remember when the, you know, the, the contractions were hard, and I remember when my wife's water broke, and the fullness of labor pains came on, and it was overwhelming. Ladies, can you identify? Can you hear? It was overwhelming. And, and, I, and, it was, and it's interesting to me that Paul, both Paul and Jesus, the Apostle Paul and Jesus, refer to uh, the sufferings of this present age as birth pains. Because the idea of birth pains is there's something glorious that's on the other side of birth pains. There's new life. There's a child. And sure enough, after three hours of pushing and a brutal delivery, we're holding Abigail in our hands, March 17th, 2001. And those birth pains were a distant memory in light of this beautiful baby that was in our presence. And so as I think about Jesus speaking to his disciples, is there wrestling with the hard things he's saying is going to happen? He lifts their eyes up to a greater truth. He says, listen, listen, the story doesn't end with the hard thing. There's a greater, I'm returning. Sin and death has been defeated. I'm victorious. So let that give you hope, this generation, when you see these awful things take place that are going to take place in the next 38 years. I have a friend who's a police officer in another state, and we've been friends for a long time. And just recently, this last week, he, he, uh, he was on a call where he, where he had to deal with the homicide of a four-year-old. And him and I have been talking a lot. It's horrible what my friend is, what he saw, 
and what he's working through as a young dad, trying to process what he saw. And we were talking last night. We're going to talk again today. And, uh, and he's like, man, how do I think about that? Like, I, that, that was all. I've seen horrible things as a cop, Paul, but that was freaking horrible. How do I reconcile what I saw with my one-year-old at home? And, uh, and so we've been talking about that. And I think about how tempting it is for us when really, really, really brutally difficult things happen. When the most searing of losses come into our life, how easy it is for our, our eyes to draw down and for us to see nothing but darkness, nothing but loss, nothing but carnage, nothing but horror. And I think about those, those folks in the city of Jerusalem in 68 AD as it was surrounded by the Romans watching their fellow countrymen starve to death slowly and die horrible deaths. I can imagine without the instruction of Jesus, it would have been easy just to give up and to believe the lie that the story ends with the darkness. And like I was sharing with my friend in, in another state, I shared with him the death of that four-year-old was not the end of the story. That's not the end of the story. Death doesn't win. Sin doesn't win. It's been defeated. We have a great hope. As a staff this week, we read Revelation 21 and 22 just to focus on the glorious hope that awaits all who are in Christ. Every tear will be wiped. There will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more suffering, no more pain. Jesus, by speaking of his second coming to these men and by God preserving this for us today, and in the original audience, by the way, which was Roman Christians in, in backbreaking persecution by reading this text, it's like Jesus reaches down from heaven, puts his hand under our chin, lifts up our face. Says, no, 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 no. Death doesn't win. Suffering doesn't win. There's a greater truth at play here. I'm coming back. I'm victorious. The truth of that hope will give us the, 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 the chutzpah, will give us the ambition, the motivation, the ability, not in our own strength, but, but yoked to him to, to endure the most difficult of challenges. And I think that's what Jesus is doing here. Lastly, Jesus says to his disciples, keep watching and keep working. I think the last few verses from 32 to 37 are kind of the key to the whole 13th chapter. He uses the language that day in verse 32, so he's back to far horizon here. That day is language that's used for the day of the Lord, the day of judgment. So Jesus is back to the future, the far horizon, I believe. And he's referring to the day of the Lord. And it looms in their imminent future, and it looms in our imminent future, and we are to keep watching for his return, and we are to keep working for his glory as we wait. We are between the first horizon and the second horizon. We live in this space. We are in the last days, and, if, and I didn't use the word waiting. Keep watching and keep working. There's nothing wrong with the word waiting, but sometimes when we hear the word waiting, we imagine ourselves sitting cross-legged on a rocking chair, twiddling our thumbs, doing nothing. That is not the picture that Jesus gives for his disciples here. It is an active, urgent, engaged, hopeful waiting and watching. We're not to sit idly back. We have work to do that Jesus has given his church. Three times, by the way, Jesus says that no one knows the day or the hour. Verse 32, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Verse 33, for you do not know when the time will come. Verse 35, you do not know when the Master of the house will come. Five times in these few verses, Jesus reiterates this watchful vigilance. Verse 33, be on guard, keep awake. Verse 34, stay awake. Verse 35, stay awake. Verse 36, uh, lest he come home suddenly and find you asleep. Verse 37, and what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. There is a vigilance here, a watchfulness here, a staying awake that the church is called to in these last days. And then in the center of all this is this, this metaphor, this parable about what it means for us to be engaged in Christian work as we wait. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands his doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. We're to do work and we're to remain watchful. Now, it's interesting to me that when we think about the the mystery of his second coming, the timing of it, Jesus offers his thoughts to his listeners here on the Olivet Discourse. About, they, remember their question was about when? Hey, when are you coming back? And Jesus offers an answer. He says, I don't know. The angels don't know. Just the Father knows. No one knows. And if you turn with me to Acts chapter 1, 
It's interesting, you know, as as Luke writes Acts chapter 1, there's this picture as, as Jesus is getting ready to ascend into heaven, and the disciples, they come to him, And they say uh, in verse 6 of Acts chapter 1, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? They're asking when questions again. They're obsessed with when questions. And there's this near-far theme at play here. They don't understand that the second coming of Jesus is going to be in the the remote future. And what does Jesus say to them in verse 7? He says, listen, you're asking the wrong question. It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. And then in verse 8, he says, but here's what I want you to focus on. Not so much when. Verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The disciples ask a question about timing. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Jesus says, you're asking the wrong question. No one knows the day. No one knows the hour, not even me. No one knows the times. No one knows the seasons when Jesus will come. So don't occupy your mind with that question. That's the wrong question to ask. You're to occupy your mind as a disciple with how ought I now live in light of these future realities. Jesus makes it very clear. It's amazing to me, and I get it, because I can be drawn to these sorts of things as well. It's amazing to me how many hundreds and thousands of books become bestsellers that deal with the when. There's something in our human mind that is obsessed. We want all our curiosities answered about the when, theories and books. And there's a time and a place for us to think about the when, but if you look at the emphasis of the teaching of Jesus here, it's not on when. He says, don't, that's that's the wrong question. Really, as a disciple, it's on how. I'm coming back, rest assured, but I want you to focus not on when, but how you are to live as a disciple of Jesus on mission for me in the intermediate. Jesus did not speak these words, and the Holy Spirit did not inspire Mark to write them down so that we could know all the specific specific events and details of the future. This prophetic, predictive teaching of Jesus is meant to instruct his disciples, both them then and us today, on how he wants us to live now in light of the realities that are coming. No one knows the day or the hour or the times or the seasons. So, what is clear and what is unclear if we said we're to keep the main things, or the plain things, the main things, and the main things, the plain things, what is, what is clear and what is unclear? As we, as we step back for a second and we look at the totality of the Olivet Discourse, what is, what is unclear? Well, there's a lot that's unclear that people don't agree on. All or some of this discord is referring to future events. No one really knows what's future, what's past, what pertains to the destruction of the temple, what doesn't. There's disagreement on that. It's not clear. What else isn't clear is that People don't agree on what the abomination of desolation is. Is it an event that happened in the temple? or Is it, is it connected to the, the man of lawlessness or the Antichrist? No one agrees. No one knows. It's unclear. The Great Tribulation, is that a tribulation that took place in Jerusalem in the first century? Or is that a Great Tribulation that is yet awaiting the church today? Or is it referring to both? It's unclear. No one knows. There's a lot that's unclear in this passage. We could debate it. It's kind of fun, but it doesn't really help. What's the main thing? What's the plain thing here? What's clear um, is that Jesus said, Certain things would happen, and they've happened. And the things that haven't happened, looking at the track record of Jesus, we can rest assured they're going to happen. So what Jesus said is going to happen is going to happen. That's, that's clear. He's coming back. Jesus also gave life-saving instructions to the first century Christians. He told them, when you see these things, flee to the mountains. And the history books tell us that Christians by the thousands, their lives were saved because they followed the instructions of Jesus, and they fled Jerusalem and when the Roman army had surrounded the city. They fled to the mountains, just like Jesus said. And if by following the instructions of Jesus led to the salvation of their mortal lives, what does the following of the instructions of Jesus look like in our lives spiritually? He offers us life eternal, life abundant. We ought to heed what he says. That's clear. And Christians are to live each and every day as if it is the day. That's clear. We're to keep watch. We're to watch for his return. We are to... We are to wait eagerly so that we can work for his glory. I was looking back at the ancient creeds this week. It's interesting to me what, what is included in the ancient creeds that have, that have been foundational to the Christian faith for millennia and what's not. I was looking at the Apostles' Creed, which is anchored in the teachings of the apostles. So this creed's been around for thousands of years. 
I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, was born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified and died and was buried. He descended to the dead. He arose on the third day again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the ever life, ever la- and life everlasting. Amen. Notice what the apostles chose to focus on. The ascension of Christ and the return of Christ. The Nicene Creed, a response to a heresy concerning the Trinity. In the center of the Nicene Creed, he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. This has been the centerpiece of the Christian faith. They knew... 1,500 years ago, 1,800 years ago, what to include and what was unclear. They left the unclear part out. They left the clear part in. Mark 13, I believe, is a back and forth shifting of focus. You can disagree with me. I'm only 51% sure, so you might convince me otherwise. I think it's a back and forth shifting of near horizon issues and far horizon issues. I think Jesus is responding to the disciples' question about the destruction of the temple, but I think he's also lifting their eyes to something greater. He's speaking of the destruction of Jerusalem, but he's also speaking of his return at an hour and a time that nobody knows. I think that the far horizon and the near horizon are purposefully intertwined in the discourse. I think the first horizon in many ways is foreshadowing the second horizon, the second coming of Jesus. Jesus is saying that this is all a part of a larger picture. There's an extended period of time from my going away to my coming back that it's going to be marked with certain realities. In the space of time between my ascension and my return, there will be false teachers and false Christs and persecutions and upheaval in families and in the natural world. Jesus is saying that his disciples will experience all of this in their lifetime, and he's saying that we as well will experience all of this in our lifetime. It's been something that the church has been experiencing for 2,000 years, false teachers, false Christs, persecutions, upheaval in the family. Jesus is saying what I'm saying to you, disciples, I'm saying to all. And the first readers who got this gospel in Rome would have said, he means us. The apostles on the mountain that day said, he means us. The 21st century church in Medford, Oregon today says, he means us. See, Mark is not so much about what Jesus wants us to know about the future. It's about how we are to live now in light of the future. So with great hope, church, with great hope, keep watching for his return and keep working for his glory. As you look back at the teachings of the 13th chapter, there's, there's just some practical implication for us to be on guard and to have a hopeful trust in him, to take heart in the midst of the most difficult circumstances and remain faithful. He calls us to keep watching and to keep working. Jesus called us to stay awake. He called us to stay at work and anticipate his return with joy. Pray with me. Father, I am so thankful for... The Olivet Discourse, God, I'm thankful for the opportunity you give us as a church to sit under this and, and, and wrestle with it. God, I, I know that your, your word has been given to us, not that we would be confused or that we would have a, a mystery that we can't connect the dots on. God, you have given us your word that we would have uh, an intelligible message. And I pray, God, that as we work through this hard passage, as we read it on our own, as we spend time under the authority of this word, God, that you would give us clarity as a church, God, that we would know what it is for us to live in light of your eventual return, your imminent return. And with the Apostle John, we pray, come Lord Jesus, we're ready. We're ready for you to return. And so God, would you do what you gotta do in our lives to prepare us for that, to make us ready for that. God, help us to, 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 to keep watchful and to stay alert and to be on guard as we await your return. God, would you give us what it takes to put our hand to the work you've called us to as your church for your glory. God, we love you trust you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. On the night when he was betrayed, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, he says that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. He said, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Often when we take the Lord's Supper, we always think back to the broken body of Jesus, and we ought. It's an appropriate response to the Lord's Supper. We ought to think of the body of Jesus, which bore our sin and was broken on our behalf. 
Often when we think of the Lord's Supper, we think of the cup of suffering that did not pass Jesus. We think of his blood that was poured out, that we might be atoned, that the sins might be washed away, that we could be born again, made pure, brought into the family of God. We look back with deep remembrance of the sacrifice of our Lord. It's appropriate to do that. But Paul here in verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 11, he says that when we eat this bread and drink this cup, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. There's a forward-looking aspect to the Lord's Supper. I read this week that as we have seen, Christ inaugurated the kingdom of God in his death and resurrection. And so it is present among his people today. The kingdom is present today. However, the kingdom is not yet here in all its fullness. There will be a day when the Lord's righteousness will rule and it will be recognized by all creation and all his enemies will be under his feet. On that day, those whom Jesus has purchased with his blood will be presented to him as a spotless bride, completely free from the presence of sin that continues to afflict his redeemed. This author goes on to write, this day to come, which will be celebrated at the marriage supper of the Lamb, is anticipated in the Lord's Supper. So as much as we look back and remember the broken body of our Lord Jesus, we look forward to that day when the kingdom will come in all its fullness. As we break bread the day, we look back and we look forward. It's a sign and a seal confirming God's pledge that this day is coming. We look forward to being in the presence of Almighty when we partake the Lord's Supper in his very presence. Amen. On your own, as you sit, as you weigh, weigh, as you measure, as you consider, when you're ready, on your own or as a family or with people next to you, I encourage you to take the Lord's Supper in your own time as we sing this final song.